All right, I hope you guys got my email and were able to bring your Genesis Scripture journals back with you this morning as we launch back into Genesis starting in chapter 12. <clears throat> Mark Jekyll and Renee are both going to read synchronized the same time. And they're going to see if they can stay in rhythm through the whole thing. Who did you guys decide who wants to do it? Mark's going to do it. Okay, Mark's going to come. We're actually going to start reading in chapter 11, verse 27, so we can pick up with the introduction of a guy named Abram, and then we're going to hear part of his story this morning. So I'm going to hand that to you, and then I'm going to pray. Is that okay? Let me pray, and then you can go at it. Lord Jesus, we, we can be so familiar with the reality that at any moment we can open up your book and hear exactly what you think and feel and believe and what reality really is. It is amazing that we have in writing before us your written words to us. We thank you for that. We honor you for that. We are grateful to you for that, that we're not just groping around wondering who you are and wondering what's going to happen when we die and wondering what you're like. Instead, we know, and so we thank you for that. And so, Lord, as we, as we hear your word read this morning and as we allow your word to examine our hearts today, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, that you would help us to believe your word, that we would love it, and, Lord, then that we would respond to it in, in ways that are appropriate and in keeping with what you want to say to us. God, help us, I pray. Spirit, descend in this room and, and comfort the brokenhearted encourage the weak. Give strength, Lord, to those who need strength. Help us, Lord, to stay in the faith. Help us to stay close to you. Help us, God, to want you more and want to please you more and love you more and walk with you more as a result of our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. 
When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land uh, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for uh, her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with, a great plague, with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Genesis eleven, twenty-seven through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Mark. So we're all now going to sing the Father Abraham song together. Yes. Father Abraham had many sons. <laughs> I am one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. <laughs> all right. See you guys next Sunday. Well, I want to begin by saying some things about Genesis chapter 12, and as we turn the corner and begin to embark on this study of a guy named Abram that at times I'm sure I will call Abraham when I shouldn't, but you will know who I am referring to as his name will be changed later on to Abraham. There's something challenging about beginning this piece of uh, the book of Genesis, and what makes it challenging is that so much can be said about Abram and so much is said about Abram in other places in the Bible. Let me give you the big picture here. We're going to study 14 chapters in Genesis that include the life of Abram. But if you were to do a search for the name Abraham, you'd find out that it's found, just his name is just found 220 times in the Bible. But only 91 of those times that his name is mentioned, he's alive which means 129 verses in the Bible talk about Abraham after he's dead. That, that is really crazy when you think about it. And 
that you will find his name mentioned in 25 different books of the Bible besides Genesis. I mean, these things I really didn't know until this week I started diving in. So, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all mention Abraham. Joshua, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles have references to the life of Abraham. Nehemiah mentions Abraham. The Psalms talks about Abraham. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Micah reference Abraham. Then you get to the New Testament. Jesus talks about Abraham in Matthew, Luke, and John. Abraham is mentioned in Acts. He's referred to in Romans, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and James. That's just a lot. And so you've got to kind of wrap your brain around all of those verses, really, in order to get a big picture of who this guy is that we're going to be studying for the next several weeks. I think it's just fair to say there's a lot that we can say about Abraham. And then on top of that, I want you to try to enter this world with me of how to understand God's word, even how to, how to grasp what God wants us to get out of God's word. You've got different perspectives we've got to keep in mind. You're reading a story, and as it's unfolding, we want to enter Abraham's sandals, right, and experience it firsthand with him. What, what would it have been like for him? But then we also have to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites when Moses hands the book of Genesis to them before they enter the promised land. They're getting it first time, so they're going to read it from their perspective. It was originally for them, so we want to identify with how they would have received it. And then you also have all of these other places where he's referenced in the New Testament, how did they see Abraham? How did they interpret the life of Abraham? So there's really a big task at hand here for us. And I really want to encourage you guys to join me in that. Um, when I was a boy, I had to carry this huge concordance around where I would flip open to Abraham, and then it would tell me all the places, and I have to flip in my Bible and look them all up. We can just pull out our phone, right? And there they are. So I want to encourage you, because we're going to be talking about Abraham for a while, to look up those other references to Abraham. Try to get a bigger picture of who this guy is and why he gets so much time in God's word. I think it's just a good practice for us to have as a church. But even though these 14 chapters in Genesis do reference Abraham a lot, it's not really so much about Abraham as it is about Abraham's God. And this is significant for us, because if we were just studying some guy who lived 4,000 years ago, and you know, what was his life like, it really wouldn't make any difference to us. But when we consider that his God is our God, and our God is his God, things start to make sense. And when we realize, as we do in chapter 12, verse 3, where he says, I will bless those who bless you, God says, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed, we realize we're included in this story because we're part of the all, right? So things that are going on in Abraham's life really are relevant for us. We are included in the story because we are descendants. We are included in this because we've been blessed through Abraham. So we're going to get to see here, I think firsthand, in living color, what our God is like by how he, God, interacts with Abraham. And you all got a new scripture memory card? You guys all get one? So this is going to be a, a, just a little sampling for us of why Abraham is relevant to our lives. And we're jumping way ahead, but I want us to have this. Start memorizing it now because it connects the dot for us. All right? So it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's probably most of us here, right? So there's the connection. Through Christ, through Abraham's blessing, we get Christ. And so there's a big picture connection we're going to see as we continue to study the book and the story of Abraham. But I would encourage you to keep working on and memorizing these verses from Galatians. Now, before we jump in to Abraham, quick, quick, very brief review of Genesis 1 to 11, because it's been a while since we were there. So here it is, really fast, and just short little phrases. God creates the earth. Everything's very good. Adam and Eve decide that they want to know evil, so they eat something they're not supposed to eat. Sin enters the world. Curses fall. Everything seems lost. God promises that there would be an offspring of Eve that would crush the serpent's head. Adam and Eve have their first baby. Their first baby in the world is the first murderer in the world. He commits the first homicide. And things continue to just go downhill as the chapters roll on in Genesis 1 to 11. Until you get to verse six, chapter 6, where God declares that every, in, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. It's bad. Mankind is in a bad place. So God decides he's going to bring judgment So he puts a flood on the earth. He saves, by grace, Noah and his family. And it's almost as if Noah gets off the ark with his family, and it's almost like Adam and Eve or creation part two. It's like a restart. Yet, we don't even get to chapter 8 when God declares once again that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So even though God restarted things, nothing changed in the heart of man. Sin got into the ark. Sin got off of the ark. And so it's in the world Today, And we see it firsthand in the story of the Tower of Babel, where God basically told people to disperse, and they said, no, we're going to come together so we can make a name for ourselves. And then we suddenly get introduced in chapter 11, verse 29, to this guy named Abram. Now, because for those of you that are just familiar with God's word, I don't think chapter 12, verse 1 hits us like it's supposed to. Has anything ever jarred you? Ever just been shocked by something like, oh my gosh, like, wow, I can't believe that. Where'd that come from? That's what 12.1 is supposed to do for us. I mean, we're humming along with all kinds of sin and problems and God's bringing judgment. He's dispersing people. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God is speaking to some guy we know nothing about, Abram, whoever he is. And what God says to him is mind-blowing. It literally changes the entire course of mankind, of everyone's life that will come after, that is included in this blessing of Abraham. So 12.1 is supposed to stagger us. We're supposed to feel like, whoa, we got caught off guard as we turn the corner into chapter 12. And in the first four verses, I love it because no one's pulling any punches. God just cuts right to the chase. Here's what's going to happen. There's no like, wow, I wonder how the story's going to evolve. It's like, nope, God just jumps right and just lays it out. Here's what I'm going to do. And immediately we know how Abraham responds. We don't wonder, wow, I wonder what's going to happen over time. What's Abraham going to do? No, immediately he responds. So there's really no suspense. It's just like you're just literally thrust into this story right out of the gate with so much information that there's like 10 sermons in the first four verses. Literally. I'm not going to take that many, but 
You could, because there's that much there. So what I want to do is I think we can, as we look at this first section, and as we I tried to do the best I could to study like the life of Abraham, what we're going to see over these next several weeks together, but I think we can sum it up this way. I think we could sum up what we're going to see in life of Abraham by this. We'd say this. There is going to be the fabulous grace of God and the faith it produces. If I had to kind of sum up the story of Abraham, I would say, you're going to see the fabulous grace of God and the faith it produces. Now, you can change those words if you want to say the spectacular grace of God, the breathtaking, the, the, the amazing grace of God, and the faith that it's meant to produce, the, the faith that we want it to produce. When you grab a hold of the grace of God for what it really is, it, it breeds faith. And that's what we're going to see happen in the life of Abraham. So i got two points for this morning. The first one is going to be about the fabulous grace of God, and the second point is going to be about the, the, great, the faith that it produces. Did I say that wrong? Okay, you were looking at me like I just said a bad word or something. Okay, good. So, number one, the fabulous grace of God. All right, so we're going to jump in this way. We all know what grace is. Grace is God blessing those who deserve punishment. That's what grace is. It's, it's somebody who deserves a butt whooping and instead gets ice cream. It's, it's punishment turned into blessing. That's, you don't get the punishment, instead you get the blessing. That is grace. And so everything that happens to Abraham here, Abram here, as he encounters God, is all of grace. It's just crazy grace. So look at, look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Here's what God says to Abraham. Here's the, here's the grace. Here's the blessing. And I will make of you a great nation. So he's he's going to make him a great nation out of him. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is, this is just abundant blessing being poured out. He's telling him I'm going to make you great and I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to bless your people. And then I'm going to put you in a place of blessing. I mean, you, don't, you can't ask for anything else. And God's like, I'm just going to do this for you. And we need to understand is that when God does this for Abraham, it wasn't because Abraham, Abram had done something spectacular to get God's attention. In fact, the opposite is true. If we understand what God said in chapter 8 of Genesis, Abraham's heart is evil. His heart was evil from his youth. He also, we're told, lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, that means nothing to us. And honestly, it wouldn't mean anything even through some of the studying I've done, except in Joshua chapter 24, he tells us what was going on in Abraham's life. So Joshua tells us, says this, and Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. We don't have that verse? That's right. There it is. They served. I want you guys to see it so you don't think I'm making stuff up. No making up verses. You need to not trust me, trust God's word. He served other gods. So you've got Abram. He, he, he's got an evil heart from his youth, according to God. Now we read that he served other gods. There's another place in Joshua, there's a few verses later, where it says, he tells the people, put away the gods of your fathers. Put away the gods that they served. 
So Abraham is, a, is, a, is creating his own gods and worshiping them instead of the true God. His heart is evil from his birth. And then we also see that God, I love the way that this happens in chapter 12, verse 1, who, who does all the initiating in this conversation? God does it. Abram's not searching for God. He's not out under the stars going, God, where are you? Reveal yourself to me. He's not hungry for God. He's not trying to find out the history of how God created. He is literally standing in the middle of nowhere. I can just see him, and all of a sudden, it just says, it's so blunt. Now the Lord said to Abram. I mean, there's no leading up to this. God just chopped in to Abram's life out of nowhere. Just said, I'm coming to you. I'm coming at you. Here I come. I'm going to speak to you. So make sure we get the order of events right here, that Abram is not pursuing God. God pursues Abram. Abram is worshiping other gods, and then God comes to Abram. And isn't that exactly the same thing that happened to you and I? We weren't searching for God. I wasn't searching for God. God came searching for me. I was in rebellion against God. I didn't want God. I wanted my own way. And God came in and took what was dead and brought it to life. God is the one that opens our eyes. So Abram's experience here and his encounter with God is the same as ours, the same as it was with, with Moses, the same as it was with, with Paul on the way to, the, on the way to Damascus. It, it's God interrupts. It's what God does. He loves to reveal himself and often to the people that you would least expect him to do it for. And so he does. God interrupts. And God's grace is fabulous, not just because of Abram being so unworthy of God blessing him, but I want you to look at the force or the purpose to which God speaks to Abram. He, he says to Abram, this is, this is why God's grace is so fabulous. God here is on an I will mission, not an I might mission. Did you, did you catch the language? Seven times God says to Abram, I will. I will, I will. There's no I might. There's no I will if you wills. It's just flat out God saying, I'm going to do this. I am on the move. And so he says in verse 1, to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make a great nation. Verse 2, and I will bless you. And we can put in parentheses, I will make your name great. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. Verse 3, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then you go to verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. God is just, it's like, I am going to bless you, and you can't get away from it. You don't deserve it. I will bless you. It's not, I will bless you if. There's no, I might. God is determined and purposeful that he is going to bless him. And he tells Abram this before Abram ever responds to say whether or not he wants in on the gig or not. God does it anyway. He makes the promise. God's grace, I think, is fabulous because this blessing doesn't just cover Abraham, but it covers all the families of the earth. It keeps going and going and going. These promises are for a blessed people that will end up in a blessed place. And isn't that really the whole storyline of the Bible? God blessing a people so he can bring them one day to a blessed place. 
that's what it means to be a Christian. We're blessed people, and we're all headed to a blessed place. So I just want you to see here the grace. There's so much more. I'd love to encourage you this week to spend time just considering just how gracious God is as he confronts Abram, as he talks to Abram, as he promises to bless Abram, a man who deserves punishment, and then to connect that to your own life in ways that you have been blessed over and over and over again in light of the reality that you and I all deserve death and punishment. We are so blessed. Just take some time to line up what I deserve to what I get. It's staggering. It will rock your world if you start to make a list of what you've done and what that deserves compared to what God does for us. It's unreal. So join Abram this week and draw the comparison between your sin, God's grace, and come away believing that God's grace is fabulous. Number two, the faith that God's fabulous grace produces So now we're going to talk about Abram and how he responds to this. You probably already know this, but throughout the Bible, most often when we read the word Abraham or the name Abraham, usually the word faith is right after it or right near it. I want to give you two little samplings just so you believe believe God's word, not me. Romans 4 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Don't move too quickly over the the phrase, fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. There's a definition of faith. There's lots of different ways to nuance faith, but that's one of them. Are you convinced That God is able to do everything that he's promised. And then in Hebrews 11, we read this. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, I spent about half my life not knowing where I'm going. I get lost in the car every time I drive, unless my wife was with me telling me where to turn. Confused all the time. Well, for for Abram, he he is now going, and he has no idea where he's going. That's faith. It's, It's believing God's promise and going, even if you don't know where you're going. This is a good definition of faith. It's going without knowing. It's obeying without seeing the end of the road. And so verse 4, back in Genesis, tells us that is what Abram did, which really is mind-blowing. It says in verse 4, So Abram went. Now, you and I know, we've read the Bible enough to know that most of the time when God tells somebody to do something, the response is not, and they did it, right? What do we usually read next, right? Complaining, no way, ain't going to do it. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that, so this, this is kind of nuts. Like, we're, we're four verses into chapter 12. We've only, known, we've only known Abram for a few verses. God says, I'm going to bless you in, a, in, in specific ways, but with no direction. And it says, and Abram went as the Lord had told him. So right out of the gate, we know why the New Testament talks so much about his faith, right? The dude gets up 
and he goes without knowing. I think faith is doing what God tells us to do without knowing the end results. You just go. That's so un-American. We are planners. I want to predict the future. I want to be in control of what's going on. Right? I mean, as Americans, we want to plan everything. We, we plan our lives. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get this degree. Then I'll get married and I'll buy a house. I'll have 1.3 kids, get two cars. The house will be too small. I'll rent it or sell it, get a new car, two trips to Disney. It's all mapped out. And then we project that onto our kids They'll play sports, learn instruments, they'll go to college, they'll avoid too much debt, hopefully getting out of college, they'll get a good job, they'll have three kids, they'll get a house, and we have their future all planned out also. This is so opposite of that. I wonder if the church has lost its faith-filled edge. Sometimes I wonder if we've lost it. I wonder if we're willing to join Abraham and just say, I'm going to go as the Lord tells me to go, even if I don't know the entire plan. Even if I don't know what the plan is, I'm going, I'm doing it. If God tells me one step and I can't see the next three, I'm still going to take that step. Because that's what Abram did. He didn't know the whole picture. In fact, he didn't really know anything. I mean, you think about it. God appears to him, blurts out three sentences, and Abram's bags are packed. That's insane. But Abram went. It says he obeyed God. Now, what makes this faith, as you keep reading the story, it just, it just, it just shows you why, why it's said over and over again that he was a man of faith. So in 12.1, God says to Abram, I'm going to send you to the land that I will in the future show you. So he begins journeying literally not even knowing what the land is where he will end up and God will show him. In 1131, we read that he was settled in a place. So he was settled. He was content. He was established. So he's leaving an established home, established land. In case you don't know, he's 75 at this time. So he's getting his AAA magazines in the mail and he's getting Social Security. Like he's settling down when he gets this letter. From God. And then it says in 12 1 that he's going to leave his kindred. That means he's going to leave his peeps, leaving them behind. He's like, hey, I'm sorry, everybody, I'm out of here. And then it says in 12 1 that he's going to leave his father's house. So he's leaving family behind. And then he's told that he's going to be a great nation. Meanwhile, we know from 11 30 that Sarah, his wife, is barren. She's 65 and he's 75. So for him to step out in faith, he really had to step out in faith. I mean, think about it. He's leaving his friends. He's leaving his family. He's leaving his comfortable, predictable, established home. He's going to go to a place he doesn't know nothing about with a wife who's 65. They've never had kids, and God says he's going to give them to them. I mean, how would you respond if this morning, when we, when we finish up here, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, just so you know, I've been seeking God, I got some accounts from other people, and, and, and I, God is calling us to, to leave. He's calling us to go somewhere, and so we, our house is for sale, I have two more weeks, I quit my job, and uh, we have no idea where we're going. You would be like, whoa, dude, what are you thinking? We wouldn't go, great faith. I'm going to pray that God leads you where he's going to send you. Our American mind would go, what? You're irresponsible. What are you thinking? And I'm sure Abram faced a lot of that. Cuckoo. 
You're packing it all up and you don't even know where you're going. You're leaving all your friends and your family to go. You don't even know where. And what does Abram do? He goes. He goes. See, I think faith is going even when it makes no sense. (laughs) Faith is believing in the I wills of God because of his fabulous grace. It's grabbing a hold of his grace in such a way that you have faith to say, God, wherever you send me, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, wherever you want me to do, spend my money, my time, show me I'm there and I will do it. Even if you only show me a little bit of it, I'm willing to take a step because I want to trust you. I know some of you are living this way and I want to keep encouraging you to live that way because your example inspires the rest of us to want to live that way and I think we just need to be a little more aware of what God might be saying to us even if it seems a little wacky and maybe take some wacky steps to do the things that God might want us to do. So let's look now what Abraham does. Verses 5 and 6, we, we see Abraham. God must have sent Abraham in a direction towards Canaan Let me read 5 and 6. So Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired at Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So God must have said, at least go in the direction. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak at Morai. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So he begins his journey. Now, just to get you an idea of how far this journey was, it was about 800 miles. So I'd be like you heading from here to Daytona, Florida, roughly, give or take some. So pack up your stuff, sell everything, grab your camel, head to Daytona. That's what he did. It wasn't like go to the next town. It's like, no, you're going to start walking. And I don't even know how this went down. I'd love to have been there, but somehow God guides him and he just keeps walking Walk. I mean, 800 miles, that doesn't, you don't do that in two days. Like, months are going by, and months after months of traveling as he heads down to Canaan. And then, this is mind-blowing, and then after walking 800 miles, and only after getting there, does Abram find out what the land is that he's going to get, that it's the land of Canaan, and... He runs into a whole new set of problems because when he gets there, somebody already beat him to the land. The Canaanites are there. So here you are. I'll call it blind faith, whatever you want to call it. Abraham finishes 800 miles. God finally, er, we park, land of Canaan. All right, here's your land. Um, There's already people uh, that are kind of occupying this land, God. Like, I just walked all this way for what? You guys ever gone on vacation, you get to the house and it's not ready or not there or somebody else is staying at it? Like, imagine that, only a hundred times worse. (laughs) He gets there, there's there's people already occupying the land that you told me that I was going to get. So he's got to think about Abraham's experience traveling with his wife at 65, being told you're going to have a kid, getting to the destination still without a child, only to find out when he gets there that someone else is already living in the land that God was promising him. So again, faith, faith, faith of Abraham. And look how he responds in 7b. It says that he builds an altar to the Lord. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, so God speaks to him, which I'm sure was a great relief that he actually was having face time with God. To your offspring, he says, I will give this land 
So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So I don't always want to project onto someone in the Bible what I think they're thinking, but I have to wonder in this case, why is Abram building an altar? Like, he's just piling rocks. I don't know. I don't, maybe it was like Lincoln Logs. and he did, well, I don't know what he did, but he built some kind of altar as a reminder of what had happened. And I wonder if he's thinking something like, I'm going to build this altar, something to remind myself that I am not completely insane. I, I, I'm in my right mind right now. I'm, it's, God just appeared to me. So before I think that I lost my mind and that this didn't really happen, I'm going to quickly build an altar so I can look back on it and go, yep, God appeared to me. Yep, God appeared to me. I, I built that altar and I did it right after God really appeared to me. He really did. And I think it's just his way of saying, I've got to remind myself of what's going on here. And then according to verses 8 and 9, he keeps walking. God keeps sending him out until he ends up in Bethel. And then it says that there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And then he journeys on more. So now Abram is starting to interact with God verbally. He's calling on God. He's calling on the name of the Lord. And oh, I wish I could have been there to hear the emotion and the words that came out of Abram's mouth when he was crying out to the Lord, when he was calling out to his name. Perhaps you can even identify. I think it went something like this. God, if you're out there, I just walked 800 miles, left everybody and everything, and I have no proof that you're ever going to do the things you said. I'm out here wandering. You tell me you're going to make me a great nation, but Sarah's still barren. You show me a land you're going to give me, but in case you didn't notice, somebody beat me to it. Who are you, God? What are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? Are you even listening? Yet I'm going to build you this altar because I want to trust in all of your I wills that somehow they will really happen and I'm not going to give up. Any of you ever feel this way? God, I took steps to do what you told me to do, but it's not turning out the way I planned. God, I made that decision believing it's what you wanted and everything now is just a mess. God, what are you doing? God, what are you up to? God, what are you thinking? God, are you going to keep your promises to be with me and to help me? Perhaps that you, that's you this morning. And you need to know that Abraham is there with you. Because I think he was thinking a lot of the same thoughts of confusion, some hopelessness, wondering what is going to happen. And then, while he is calling upon the name of the Lord with no proof that God is going to do what God said he's going to do, look what happens in verse 10. Talk about getting kicked while you're down. There's a famine in the land. In fact, it says it was a severe famine. I mean, I panic when there's no ice cream at Safeway. When steak's not on sale, all hell breaks loose in our house. We don't know famine. But you think about the journey this guy has been on. Literally, God is all talk and no action. From Abraham's perspective at this point. And now there's a famine. Oh, great. 
So now this God is leading me aimlessly all over the place. He hasn't done anything he said he's going to do, and now there's no food. I'm just going to die of starvation. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like you've been down, and then down further and down further, and you wonder if God is ever going to stop testing your faith. Because I think it's an understatement to say here that God is testing Abraham's faith. And Abraham has nothing to go on other than God's words. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It's all he has. He's going on God's words and believing that God will do what he said he's going to do even though he has no tangible proof. And so Abraham responds to this. We're going to move quickly through this last section because there's lots of debate over what Abraham does and whether what Abraham does here is evil in God's sight or just kind of neutral in God's sight. Let me explain. So what does he do? He goes down to Egypt. Some people say, oh, Egypt's bad, so he should not have gone to Egypt. He should have stayed and trusted God and stayed where he was to provide food. But he doesn't. He goes to Egypt. Of course, there's the whole thing with Sarai being his sister and lying to save his own skin. That sure seems pretty bad. Pharaoh is more upright than Abram. He actually confronts Abram for saying that Sarai is his sister. And then Abram should leave ashamed that Pharaoh's got to confront him. So some conclude this story exists to make sure we know that Abram's a sinner. He's a sinner, and that's what it's there for. And it could be. The problem I have with embracing this interpretation is that God never corrects Abram. In fact, God blesses Abram. He leaves with all the booty. How does that go down? How does that happen? So I don't know if that's what's going on. And nowhere in the Old or New Testament, and like I said, there's a ton, 129 more times we're going to read about him, nowhere in the New Testament is there ever anything negative said about what he did. Ever. Now, we look at it through our lens and go, lying's a sin, that you don't ever treat a woman that way. You tried to save your own hide. You didn't trust God and stay where God told you to stay. But I don't think Abram had that same filter. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. I don't think he knew what lying was. He was being shrewd. Hey, get, check this out. I'm going to come up away for me not to die. His peers might have applauded him for all I know. So I want to be careful to say that this was inserted in here. This little piece of this story was inserted in here just so we would see that Abram was a sinner. I don't think the silence that we find about God from this in anywhere in the Bible should also say, mean that we think God is applauding him, because I don't think God's applauding him either for what he did. So how is this story meant to function? How is it meant to function? I think this story is here to meant to function two ways, primarily this. I think God is trying to show us how Abram got rich. I say that because of all the details of the donkeys and the male and the female and all that stuff that he puts in there. That, that's, that's really good news. I think saying I'm going to give you a big truck to carry as much stuff as you need short distance, right? That's the oxen. And, and I'm going to give you a hybrid that gets 80 miles to the gallon so that you can do long distance. That's the camels, right? I'm, I'm going to give you males and females so you don't have to go shopping for animals anymore because they can do their thing and you don't have to find anymore. Basically, he's saying, I've given you everything you need. You're 75, so you've got servants, male and female, to do your work because you're too old and you don't want to do it anymore. Basically, it's all the blessing. And then he comes right out and says it in chapter 13, verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich. So I wonder if the story exists for one way to say, this is how Abram got rich, and this is how God blessed him. 
This is the blessing of God on Abram. So I wonder if that's one of the reasons why this story is inserted in here, why we get these details, as well as God protected him. I mean, why the heck didn't Pharaoh just have him killed? Why didn't Abram have an accident as he was walking to the well that morning, <laughs> right? And that's what I would have done if I'm Pharaoh. So God obviously protects him. So God's hand is on him, maybe we could say even through his foibles as he's meandering through this world. But there's something else about this story that I think is undeniable. Do you not see parallels in this story to another story? Say it, Tessa. Exodus. Exodus. The parallels are remarkable. I think this is a mini Exodus. I think this is a little foreshadowing of what's going to come. So look at all the things that line up perfectly. You've got Egypt and Egypt, right? In the Exodus, people are going to Egypt. Abram goes to Egypt. You even got Abram lying. You've got Joseph's brothers lying about Joseph being killed. You've got a famine in the land. You've got Pharaoh and plagues going on. You've got Pharaoh telling the people to go, get out of the land. You've got Pharaoh telling Abram, get out of here and go. Abram leaves rich. And what happens to God's people when they leave Egypt? They plunder the Egyptians. So I have to wonder if this story is here. It happened and recorded. So that when God's people got this, when they're getting ready to enter the promised land, they read it, they go, whoa, our father Abraham went through a mini trial just like we did. He experienced the same thing we did, just in a miniature form. He went through the same thing. I wonder if the parallels are there so they would connect their experience, which was on a grand scale, to their father's experience of faith on a smaller one. See, this is what's interesting about reading the Bible. As the storyline of the Bible unfolds, more and more of God's plan of redemption is revealed. The story keeps advancing, and as it does, we see more and more of what God's like, and more and more of what God is doing. And I conclude this because although Abraham's trip to Egypt has many parallels to the Exodus, it's lacking an important ingredient because ultimately what got the Israelites out of Egypt and what saved them? It was the slaughtering of a lamb. It was the blood of a lamb. So in this story, there's no shedding of blood, but Abram grows free. In the Exodus story, which is like a blown-up version of, of Abram's experience, what happens? Oh, now there is the shedding of blood. But what's missing in the Exodus story? It's not the shedding of the Son of God's blood. It's just the shedding of a lamb. So it's like right here in Genesis, we're getting this little mini snapshot of what's going to happen to God's people in Exodus, which then paints the picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes. It's like the story is slowly unfolding, almost like somebody was masterminding a plan and letting us see it as it unfolds. Almost. So Jesus says this about Abram in John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abram rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. I think we have a slide for that. Your father Abram rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So to some degree, Abram saw the coming of Christ. Some way, some clouded way. And I wonder if this experience that he had somehow helped him to see something about the future, the day when Christ would come, that God was revealing it to him through his experiences, through the blessing that he would be 
to the nations, to many nations, whether God was opening his eyes to see that. So here in Genesis 12, Abram encounters God maybe for the very first time. Yet through those encounters and experiences, he sees more and more of God. And is that not true for you and I? The more we live, the more we learn to walk in faith, the more God reveals of himself to us, the more we learn to trust him, and the more we go through those hard times and we think it can't get any worse and then there's a famine in your land. But you learn to trust God more and then he reveals more of himself to you. So as we continue to study the life of Abram, I pray that your encounters with God and your life circumstances help you, cause you to see and experience God more. I hope we're able to see the things that Abram goes through and connect them to the things that we go through so that as we watch Abraham's faith grow, our faith will grow the same, that we will see the fabulous grace of God and that will produce wonderful faith in our lives. Amen? Amen. So we're going to sing a song, and I want to, I don't say this often enough, but if there's any of you that need prayer, maybe you feel like you're Abram, only you don't have the same faith. (laughs) You wish you had the same faith. You feel like you've got lots of things going against you. Life is really hard. You just need to know that Tyler and I and everybody here obviously is ready. We'd love to just pray for you. So I just want to encourage you, if you feel like you can identify with Abram, his crying out to God, some of the challenges that he faced to please don't leave here without letting someone pray for you. Let somebody just pray a blessing on you and help because we need that from one another. We need that encouragement. So I just want to encourage you to do that this morning before you leave. Let's stand. We're going to sing.